Well, you can talk about films with a philosopher's zeal, or measure them all by box office appeal. But for once in your life, be real. Welcome, one and all, to the movie reviewing and reappraising podcast, where we take through three movies at a time, and you know, one to two weeks apart, we genre hop to these trios with similar themes and contexts and everything. We have an autumnal category for you today, but first, we'll introduce ourselves. It's a three-person episode. My name's Chance Solon Pfeiffer. I'm Noah Ballard. And I'm Brent Rivers. Friend of the pod. Yes, Brent's here. Back in action. It's been almost a year since I've been on, so it feels, uh, it feels due. Brent, do you feel more or less qualified to talk about Americans in Mexico movies or movies about teachers inspiring students? You know, I got to be honest, it's a pretty much a 50-50 shot. Um, My experience as a teacher is not the experience of a boarding school teacher. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So I had to use my imagination a lot while I was watching these movies to imagine what it might be like if I could never go home from my job. That's true. Also, go home from your job 70 years ago or in magic land. (laughs) Yeah, in a place that will never exist, past, present, or future. Right. Right. Yeah, Brent, let me ask you before we get into this, have you ever or are you willing to own up on the podcast uh, to ever having uh, destroyed school property just to make a philosophical point? Yeah, you know, I got to say I am like stunned, um, not really stunned, but like kind of stunned at like how bad the teaching is in these movies, just like from like a purely like if you were my coworker point of view, like just yeah. just awful, awful across the board. Yeah. We're watching three back-to-boarding school movies for today's podcast episode. We're doing Dead Poets Society, School Ties, and Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. But do we have any business, any uh, ethos to get out of the way before we roll, Noah? Thanks. Thanks for doing this. Keep it real. Think slow. We should get through it just fine. Hello, Ryder, Donnie. Donnie, hello, Ryder. Brent, how was your first week of school? Oh, uh, two days long, exactly the way I like it. Uh, no, we, we didn't. I didn't start with students till Thursday, so I've only had a couple of classes. But I'm really stoked. I love my school. We uh, we get through a lot of cool stuff. I get to teach film class, which is awesome. Um, and actually, some exciting news here that actually now is probably a good time for me to debut. So I have a uh, bulletin board on the front of my board uh, that I like to make it something kind of active and dynamic, and not just like, hey, here's notes and information. Um, so I'm always trying to get kids to like recommend other movies and books and things like that to each other. Uh, so last year, I just had a a picture of Steve Brule up there that just said, check it out. And they had to like, you know, propose different, you know, uh, books or movies or TV shows or whatever on there. Well, this year will be the first ever be real, uh, 
bulletin board that we'll have in which we are creating a graph upon one <laughs> axis, objective quality of film, oh. along the other axis, uh, axis, subjective enjoyment of film, and students will be required at least once per marking period to make a hot take, pin a card somewhere on the graph, and defend it in front of their peers. So I gotta say, I'm stoked for this year of school. Are you going to recommend as like part of this assignment to listen to a few episodes of Be Real? I actually have recommended your podcast to students uh, in the past. Uh, we do a whole podcasting unit in which students pick their own uh, podcast to listen to or movies to watch. And then they podcast about each individual movie uh, kind of once a week over the course of four weeks. Uh, and they have to pair a book with it as well. So they read a quarter of the book. So um, I always recommend yours as uh, one to kind of, hey, if you're looking to see what a podcast is like, check it out. Wow. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, yeah. So if there are any former students who, for some reason, are still listening, what's up? As I piece together the readership chance and I have, I am just more and more amazed at humanity and, like, what my influence is. <laughs> <You> selfish, <laughs> selfish bastard. Um, but, oh, my God, Brent, that's so nice. I almost don't even want to do... i running. I'll have to show you guys some pictures. Yeah. yeah. I kind of don't want to do the show anymore, you know? I don't feel like it's going to get better than that. Okay, let's run. We're going to talk about back to boarding school movies. And I mentioned them before. It's Dead Poets Society, School Ties, and Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. We're going to go chronologically. Dead Poets. This was a several times Oscar-nominated movie. It's been shown in English classes all over the country when... Uh, when the semester's almost up, I was going to ask. Um, and uh, yeah, Robin Williams is the professor, John Keating, who who shakes up this Vermont uh, sort of conservative all-boys preparatory institution in the 50s. And we're introduced to a, a cast of teenagers that includes uh, uh, Ethan Hawke and a lot of other people. I well, What's the one guy's name who's from House? Robert, Sean Robert Leonard? Robert Sean Leonard. Um, whose apartment Brent stayed at for a weird summer. What? It was a weird summer. Yeah, it's fine. We don't need to talk about that <laughs> too much on the podcast. It's a real cast of people who are going to be... Well, that this this whole genre has is littered with people who then end up being bigger people. Yes. And then some who you think might be and then never are. Gentlemen, what are the four pillars? Tradition, honor, discipline, excellence, manners up. Welton Academy for Boys, a breeding ground for the future leaders of America, an institution dedicated to achievement, virtue, and conformity, a school whose rigid standards are upheld by every single teacher, except one. Come on, Mr. Overstreet, you twerp. Mr. Anderson, are you a man or an amoeba? Language was developed for one endeavor, and that is to communicate. No. To woo women. Mr. Keating. Some people like to rock. Peter Weir, I think, is a pretty stable director that yeah. generally makes a good movie. You know, he's made Truman Show, Master and Commander. Brent, you, like, hate Master and Commander, right? Just the bad parts. So all of it, yeah. <laughs> it's uh, three and a half hours of bad water. Anyway, but I think he's a pretty decent director. And I remember, I haven't seen this movie in maybe ten years. When was the last time you saw it, Chance? This is my senior year of English class. <laughs> Brent, yes. where did we watch this? We yeah, in some English class. Yeah. And I remember being like, wow, like, what a cool movie about, like, not wanting to conform. And mm -hmm. then, like, 
haven't really thought of it in any other terms. Yeah, I, I gotta say, for a movie uh, in which a teenage boy kills himself, it's pretty uplifting. Um, like, just kind of across the board. I, I think that one of the reasons that, like, teachers can kind of still get away with showing this movie is that it largely does represent, like, some of the basic tenets of romanticism, you know? I mean, it's not entirely, you know, debunk into you know like empty in terms of its literary merit i mean like no it's not profound but it's like 1989 profound you know like these are the things that maybe people would have shared in their facebook statuses circa 1989 or i guess 1950 if we're supposed to believe that's then but like you know this movie is just so sincere and i think like that is very much to its credit you know i mean it believes so wholeheartedly in its themes in the the kind of power of like learning and knowledge and and all of this, like, you know, kind of romantic idealism that Robin Williams's character, John Keating, not to be confused with Tom Keating, an incidental character in School Ties, th- at least three years later. Uh, but John Keating is basically just like the, like, teacher's wet dream, basically, to, like, look at and be like, wow, look at them well, that- solve their problems and go against the administration. Well, that's what we were talking about earlier, the idea that he's like the kind of teacher that would like literally tear pages from a book because he didn't believe in how like this read of poetry to even be legitimate because it's just so compact. In a way that is sort of disturbingly similar to our writing system, taught to like, you know, can you grade poetry like on this axis and this axis? Is it made well and is it entertaining? (laughs) Those are the pages that John Keating has them rip out and then they just like dive a whole hog into uh, Whitman. <laughs> well, that's that's what's kind of funny about this movie, just at the setup that I knew it was going to be a fun one to sort of, or kind of an annoying one to talk about in terms of our rating system, is it like acknowledges the way people think about movies the way we do. Yeah. And so, like Brent was saying, it just goes so, it goes so sentimental in a way that like almost absolves it from criticism because it's like, come on, man. It's just like, it's just a good movie. You know, that sort of feeling about it. It's a good message. I don't know. I like, is it a good movie? I think remains really to be seen. And, the, the you know, I guess we'll get to the rating system of this movie. But I think that, like, the message is really easy to get behind. Well, I think it's interesting to go along with that is that I think all three of these movies make an argument that in some ways tradition is what is keeping these students from attaining their their highest thing. I think my main problem with this movie is that it's, like, it's set up like other than it being like a good movie about like, yeah, like you got to do what your heart tells you to do. It's fundamentally sort of ridiculous on the narrative sense, like what happens to these characters and why it's pretty unstructured. It's pretty unstructured, but like what does exist in the narrative sense in terms of things these characters have to get through. The main one is red Foreman doesn't want Neil to do anything. Yeah. And anything he does threatens the group. And then you have his antithesis, this this like very uh, English teacher wet dream in Keating who presents his like polar opposite who says, you can do everything. And that is ultimately the crux of the conflict. The characters are ultimately pretty wooden and only have like one thing they're hell bent on doing. Yeah. Another way of saying that is it just it doesn't pick a kid. It doesn't pick a kid, and then if you're not going to do that, the only approach you can take is a Linklater approach, which Peter Weir and Tom Schulman are certainly not all the way up to. And so you have this movie that is like, uh, 
kind of, for me, still kind of gripping in the teaching scenes, especially when juxtaposed to the way the other teachers teach. But when it leaves them, and particularly as it winds up with the Neil suicide, it's just like, you didn't, you didn't pick a protagonist. And so this right. like very jarring, dark act kind of just thrusts us toward the end. Like why, if Keating had taught them anything, wasn't it that the act they should be doing would be to like, I was waiting for like a, well, fuck you, dad moment. Yeah. That like, I thought the movie was building to that, but maybe Brent's right because it is like this romantic epic that like he had to, instead of like, meeting it with conflict he had to just give this grand gesture well the question i was hoping you could answer brent with regard to this movie is just you mentioned the spirit of keating still appeals to academics today but is he a good teacher does he he doesn't actually teach them much no, and, and I mean, so it's tough, right? Because I mean, on one end, you could look at it from like a like a time period perspective, right? I mean, in the 1950s, like so much of what we were doing academically was bad. I mean, it was it was rote, it was memorization, right? I mean, it was it was, or and I mean, to say that it was bad maybe is short sighted, but it's very contrary to like what we would consider to be best practice today, yeah. right? Now it's all about like getting teachers to not be lecturers, getting students to you know invest themselves, create their own engagement, right? You know, and and to kind of have that ownership themselves. Whereas this is obviously about removing ownership, right, and kind of objectifying them as kind of like products of this machine. So like in the 50s, like, yes, that would have certainly been radical teaching, right? This is like really before you have Waldorf and Montessori and like other like real alternative educations that we would see a little bit more kind of popularized now, at least kind of maybe trendified. Um, but like his teaching, like, do we ever see him really check for understanding? Like, no. Does he set out <laughs> with like very clear goals that he wants students to have? Like, absolutely. But like, are they transferable skills? Like, you know, if it's an English teacher, like in, in which ways are his goals of communication related to reading or writing or speaking, right? Like, yes, he gets Ethan Hawke to like say words, but I, he doesn't really like get them to like establish where they currently are, set a goal to be somewhere else and grind to get there. So like from a teaching perspective, really across all three of these movies, just bad teaching. If we zoomed out a little bit, Brent, like how would you... I was talking to my friend and client, Justin Taylor, yesterday. Uh, he was in Brooklyn briefly for the Slice Literary Festival. And we were sitting on the steps of Borough Hall. We were talking about just, like, teaching because I'd been watching all these movies. And he said something to the effect of, you can only expose your students to lessons. You can't choose what they do with them. Less so school ties, but very much so this and Azkaban um, seem to uh, really inflate the, a teacher's ability to penetrate, right? To, to affect students and to be affected in their lives outside of that classroom, right? I mean, like we see Knox Overstreet being like, no, my new name is this new name, you know? Like they get so committed to this like teaching that he has in the classroom that they can kind of take it out of the classroom. And I think, you know, from that end, um, you know, I think that this and Harry Potter really seem to endorse that idea of like, no, you can absolutely determine what your students do with it. Like if it is, if it is good and pure and just enough, like that is what your students will take out of it. And I think the opposite is also true. I mean, we, we, you know, not to jump too far into Harry Potter here, but like we see that overlap with Malfoy and Snape the same way that we do with Lupin and Harry. So I think that, you know, in a lot of ways, while in reality, absolutely, that's a pretty sincere limitation of a teacher is that like, once your student leaves your classroom, again, we talked about poverty, you know, like if there's nobody at home who's encouraging a student to do homework, 
data shows that that affects their ability to do work, you know? Um, and so that, that idea that, that at points teachers are limited, these movies seem to reinforce the idea that like, sure, teachers are limited, but if they are scrappy enough and clever enough, they'll find a way to affect those students and they'll take that learning outside of just this room. Interesting. Can we talk about how this movie has not worn well? I mean, obviously like movies about, uh, New England preparatory schools in the 50s are full of white men and they're all going trying to get into the Ivy League. So there's like an inherent like there's privilege abounds, but that's like also the subject matter. But just a a movie that sort of encourages boys beyond everything else to just feel themselves like hasn't worn particularly well. Well, it's, It's especially interesting in one moment where and maybe I'm just reading too much into this in 2017, but there's a moment where. Knox is like chasing after this girl and she's passed out drunk next to him and he like goes in to kiss her and she's unconscious. And there was a moment in my mind where I'm going, when he gets to Harvard, he's going to date rape someone. Yeah. Like that is the, that is the kind of boy that would do it thinking it was like, finally my shot. Sure. And that's exactly what I mean. Like it's a, it's a movie that, and maybe this is like something with, because Keating is not teaching them literature or really a philosophy, but rather just a feeling that they should have about the world. Like when they take that lesson out there, they will execute it however however they will. Because they're not better people after being taught by Keating. Like one of them is dead. Like one of them is... I don't think you the know. film believes that, though. Like, I, I think yeah. that we as an audience today look at that and go, like, dude, your lives are so much worse, you know? Like, you were going to be just fine. But I think within the film, like, that whole, oh, Captain, my Captain moment is, like, triumphant. And so, like, even though, you know, you talked about romanticism before, like, that grand gesture of his suicide, like, is obviously like, a really bad thing. Like, it's still in the spirit of Keating in that, like, it is grand. It is what you felt. Well, this and these movies, like, you have like the kid in peril kind of thing in school ties specifically. And we'll get to that in a second. Yeah. There's, but there's, I mean, there's that teacher that drives the kid to like lose it. Yeah. There's definitely trying to portray a, a cultural That's, social pressure generate of generations it's a spectrum, though, through people. Yeah. Whereas like Keating just like hugs him to death and then, uh, you know, the other guy. I think it's surprising. A lot of people um, who know about this movie but haven't seen it are familiar with the Robin Williams component of it, right? And I think in so many ways, like, that John Keating character is so much of, like, the kind of persona that he was off screen as well, just in terms of, like, someone who was loving and supportive and, like, was not afraid to, to, to follow those traditions and things like that. Um, but I think it's surprising how little time he's actually in this movie. You know, like, chances right. said they don't pick a, prota- pick a protagonist, and, like, that's absolutely true because he's got, like, four or five scenes where he's, like, really clever and smart army but like ultimately it is all about these kids and he's more of a set piece like he really doesn't change at all throughout the film he's pretty static throughout um so i think that that's kind of a a, a, an overall kind of shortcoming of the the, just the craft of the film that's true i will maintain that i think that the relationship i mean the most memorable thing about the movie is the dynamic between him and the kids the images of him doing something and then all these teenagers sort of laughing and i maintain that that holds up well to this day just because it was the same as the camera off dynamic. It's a bunch of young actors watching a once in his generation professional just like do drama and comedy and improv at the same time as he sort of goes for it with them as characters and as people. And I think that's still uh, a great feeling. I think in the Chancel and Pfeiffer School of Film critique, we have to assess 
how good is the common room hang? Oh, yeah. And I think that this one's got pretty good hang. It's... Uh, running around the, the bed, I thought, was a pretty awkward scene. That was, that was very... I mean, I wasn't alive in the 1950s, but I can't imagine that uh, that, that felt... But what about the, uh, the desk set scene? I love that scene. That is a great scene. Yeah, yeah. I no, think, I think uh, I think the tight drama, like the inter-character drama, I think is really great. I mean, like you know, another one of these common themes that we see here is that we have almost no loving adults who are not teachers, you know. And so, like everybody's got some issue with their parents, you know. And so, like you know, the 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 Robert Sean Leonard Ethan Hawke scenes, I, I think, are actually some of the more compelling scenes, even if they are a little, you know, what the kids today would call cringy. You know, it's that that overly sincere, like. Oh, you're really gonna throw it off the roof, like really? But you know, again, it's uh, it's that romanticism. It's that that even not only fifties, but sweeping gestures, grand, very grand, no nuance. Sweeping gestures, both on the acting side, the story side, and the directorial side. I would say. I think Gail Hansen, who plays Charlie slash Nawanda, who like never acted again, is actually like the social MVP of this movie, though. Yeah. Oh, oh definitely. He's the glue. He's yeah. the glue. And you also kind of so, need that guy per school ties, right? Who's sort of like the the crazy guy who's like willing to go further than everybody else who's following him at the beginning. That is a that is a trope as well. Um, should we tell people how we rate movies before we rate this one? All movies and most of life can be described with our rating system. The four categories are good, good, bad, bad, good, bad, and bad, good. The first good or bad refers to intellectual quality. The second is pure pleasure. Good good is easy. Things that make you feel smart and happy, and that for both reasons you'd want to do again. Like watching The Departed, or Jaws, or calling your pal to do a podcast with him. Good good movies make Noah say... Love that. Bad bad is easy too. Things that bring you neither stimulation nor joy. Basically, you just wasted your time. Things like watching White Chicks or Wild Wild West, a conceptual double album of Christian pop punk. Bad, bad movies make Chance say things like, I hated that. Good, bad, then, is something you recognize as worthwhile, but not something you enjoy. Schindler's List, Requiem for a Dream, most classical music, eating your goddamn vegetables. Good, bad is about being an adult, and these kinds of movies make Noah say, I mean, I'm glad I saw it once, but never again. Conversely, bad good is for your thoughtless inner child. It's Cheetos. It's late career Billy Joel. It's movies like Christmas Vacation. Honey? Kids? And Deep Blue Sea. Bad good movies make chance say, But it failed in such an entertaining way. Got all that? Now buckle up, because you're about to hear an opinion stated as fact. I think I'll go ahead and give this one, um... A bad good. Oh, yeah. There it is. I think this is a movie that, like, makes me feel all right about having an English degree, but I don't... Well, not having to really, like, forwardly deal with the fact that I may be a worse person than I was. (laughs) Than if you'd studied econ or something? Yeah, if I'd just, like, actually paid attention and didn't write, like, light-blinding papers about, you know, Rasselis, uh... (laughs) so whatever but yeah i think it's more entertaining than it is a good movie oh absolutely i'm i'm right in there with you too it's it's uh it's easily a a kind of a bad good for me it's definitely really 
the strings in it are so clear, you know, to watch now. Like uh, that, that, that there are no surprise beats except for random beats, you know. So uh, overall, I, it's still fun to watch, but no, it's uh, it's not a terribly profound movie. I had trouble rating this one just because I think Peter Weir is a very good director, and if you look at like his filmography, he's excellent at like showing people in spaces that alienate them. If you think about Truman Show, Master Commander, uh, The Way Back, his last movie, or Witness, it's all about like people interacting with like austerity and alienation in their spaces. And I think there's some really well put together sequences in this movie that running around the desk scene notwithstanding. Um, but just how he kind of creates movement in a room in a shot where you wouldn't think there would be any, it almost makes me want to say it's good good but there's no there's no structure to this movie and I don't have anyone to be with it doesn't even do the sort of uh doesn't even have the seasonal arc quite down like you know the quarterly throughout the year uh, you were so, hoping for a little snow some Christmas decorations in one shot I mean I got that we just didn't get to spring Keating right. only made it to Christmas <laughs> um, right uh, so I think it's a bad good as well it's so funny because it, it's it's a it's a script written by the screenwriter from Honey, I Shrunk the Kid. So it's it's probably a bad, bad screenplay, but then it's given to a good, bad director, and weirdly it makes a bad, good movie. That is an excellent, excellent point. Well, let's move three years in the future to School Ties, and I bet we can do this one a bit quicker. Um, it stars uh, Brendan Fraser as a, as a quarterback, from the all-American town of Scranton, Pennsylvania. One of those rare athletic Jews. <laughs> Noah's going to help us with all that today. Um, all that kind of commentary. Um, and he is shown immediately in this movie, also set in the late 50s, um, getting called an ethnic slur and getting into a fight with a greaser. He wanders away from that fight with his face bloodied and swollen and wanders right into a preparatory scholarship because you get the sense that this place has called him in another uh, Massachusetts preparatory school, I think, is basically uh, is paying him a, a full ride, giving him a full ride to be... Well, no, the- not a full ride. <laughs> what? He still has to, like... Well, he still has to, like, do his... his oh, he still has uh, to work in the kitchen. ...campus job. The idea is that there's no way in a million years he'd be able to afford this school. And so, yes, like with the on-campus job, he is able to like go for free in exchange for his football prowess. Right, you are. Um, And then so he quickly arrives at this place where he's a fish out of water. The football coach, who seems like a very nice man who played the warden in the Newsies, is, oh, no, that guy is Nick Andopoulos's dad in Freaks and Geeks, and he is not a very nice man. He sells his drugs. I mean, his drums. Wait. Yeah, his drums. That's He's a real, like, Red Foreman from Dead Poets Society in uh, Freaks he and is. Geeks. No music. But he tells Brendan um, Fraser, you know, play your cards close to the chest with these guys. Um, don't doesn't... tell them you're a Jew. He has two of those conversations before he even gets to the school. He has the conversation with his father right before he's about to get on the bus and the one with the coach once he gets off the bus, both of them using language like play it close to the chest. You don't have to tell them anything. I mean, it is like dripping in this don't ask, don't tell 1992 rhetoric. Yeah. Um, so then he quickly, I mean, he encounters his, his teammates and his uh, his school friends for his senior year which uh, would be uh, Matt Damon and Chris O'Donnell and Ben Affleck super briefly, and then a bunch of people we don't know. Um, and then they're casually anti-Semitic right away, to prove a point. And You forgot to mention Cole Hauser. So Brendan Fraser immediately and easily makes the... Or not easily, 
but interiorly, but exteriorly, he makes it quite easy. I'm not going to tell these guys. I'm not going to tell these wasps who have been at Princeton and Yale and Harvard for four generations that that I'm Jewish. Uh, yeah, he literally puts his Star of David necklace away in an underwear drawer in his dorm room. So, like, could not be more kind of on the nose as far as that symbolism goes. Yeah. yeah. And it becomes, it's hard to classify the story to follow because it's sort of like a fish out of water story where the where the fish's background is secret, but where he's also like better at being in the water than all these people who are supposed to be. Um, so, and then some drama is like, again, hardcore manufactured at the end to prove a point and to end the movie. Um, and it's written by Dick Wolf, the empresario of law and order. And did you guys notice the way this kind of loosely followed the structure of an episode of law and order? <laughs> for the courtroom scene at the end it's okay so it starts with like it starts with sudden violence and then it kind of like ramps up through this mystery and then it has to turn into obligatory like trial like the uh, Aristotle's judiciary system has to be formed and then it even kind of ends with that sort of like Jack McCoy-esque (laughs) walk-off comment Dick Wolf just couldn't help himself and the key witness, like, <laughs> hidden in the chair until the very last minute. But in that sort of, like, roving way with an underlying mystery, I think I enjoyed, like, the ramp up to this movie. I thought The Hang was also, like, pretty interesting. and that bre- The it- Hang was definitely more interesting than Dead Poets Society. And that it all rested in, like, them kind of looking at Brendan Fraser and being like, What's with that guy? And Brendan Fraser getting away with it because what they're asking is just like a bunch of people who never did anything other than Matt Damon, who's really acting here. They're just being like, what's with that guy? What is it about him? What's that magnetism? It's like, well, he's going to be a movie star. That's what you're asking about. Like, that's why he can dance and be charming. You're talking about somebody's like movie star magnetism. Yeah. It's kind of weird that they hung this movie on Brendan Fraser, though. If anything, it should have been reversed, I think. On to Matt Damon, have, yeah, who looks just as you know, not waspy I mean, as Brendan Fraser, Fraser. Doesn't, look, doesn't look particularly like Jewish, and like sort of that's the other thing about this movie that sort of hangs. Well, I think what makes for better hang in the lead up chance you're talking about is the fact that like the character has a secret, and that makes for entertaining sort of conversation. Yeah, because they'll like joke about something about because there's like a few moments where they just talk about Jews because there's no Jews around, mm-hmm. they or so they think, and they say racist things, but it. I think because he's, whereas like the Dead Poet Society boys aren't really given that much of like a cross to bear, no pun intended. I envy you. You don't have to live up to anybody else's expectations. You are who you are. But their acceptance of him. You're so different from the other boys. You know everything about them in two minutes. But you... At four minutes, easy. <laughs> and their feelings for him. I think you're so pretty. Thank you, Pete. Thanks for taking care of my girl. I'm not your girl. May not survive. Wizard. The truth about him. Why wouldn't St. Luke's have taken him? They wouldn't have enrolled a Jew. A Jew? Not even for a championship. 
I really buy the hang, you know, like I think the idea that like these guys all like enjoy each other and are enjoying each other's company uh, and like even some of the school stuff for this actually felt a lot more believable than the school stuff in Dead Poets Society, just in terms of like their stress and anxiety, their like constant awareness of like what each individual thing they're doing is going to reflect on their individual futures, you know, like those I think allowed that school part of it to be a little bit more um, kind of concrete. Um, and I think that the fact that he is a quarterback in particular, like gives it this kind of like sports shorthand that it can use in mm -hmm. terms of like, okay, he is a leader because he's able to literally throw a pass to this guy. Hope he turns out to be really helpful at the end of the movie. Spoiler alert, he will, you know, like it's, so it's those types of moments that I think allow you to kind of buy in a little bit more to the, to the, to the hang, to the, the kind of group dynamic. But it's it's enough for the narrative to sort of say, like, these boys are bonded now. That's yeah. true. And then when the second act of him being outed as a Jew comes into the thing, then you're sort of playing with the first act, which I think was landed pretty cleanly. I think the second act is what tears this movie apart. Like, there was the mystery, yes, and they were, of course, always going to find out that he was Jewish, and for there to be a negative reaction to that, yeah. But what Damon someone who he had a complicated bond with, to turn full villain. Like, what is the point? I, I didn't understand the point of this movie as they kind of introduce this cheating scandal in the last 20 minutes. I mean, I think it, it turned from an interesting sort of complicated movie about, like, this outsider to Dick Wolf grinding his gears about anti-Semitism he dealt with in his upbringing. Right. And it just basically lands on the premise of like bigotry is bad. And if you're a bigot, you're just a bad person who would also cheat. But it really doesn't have like tangible evidence, anything that uh, Sam Waterston could bring to the stand uh, to prove that those are correlated in any way. I just think the biggest issue is like the, it, it's, it's kind of low hanging fruit. It's like, wait, you're going to tell me that uh, an all boys waspy prep school up in New England in the 1950s was anti-Semitic? It's like, yeah. Duh. Like, I, I don't know. Like, in 1992, you have to make that movie. You know, like, I can almost see, like, in 1989, you being like, no, we need a Dead Poets Society. You know, like, Diane Ravitch has come out and said our schools are failing and in need, but, like, this is what we need. Like, this is of the time. Like, 1992, like, you really need to be like, hey, we're so against bigotry. We're even against the bigotry of the 50s. And also in a movie where Matt Damon, like, casually drops the N-word and... And somebody uses the phrase great white hope unironically. I mean, it's, <laughs> but um, for, it was so, it was so like, well, of course these guys are super racist against black people. And it's like, well, that, but you didn't care to investigate that at all. Or really the nature of like, it really kind of abandoned a more interesting investigation of privilege for a very pat one of anti-Semitism. It's a pretty hard bad bad for me. You're gonna go bad, bad. Yeah, I, 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 I would I, not watch this movie again. That's the end of that sentence. I would not watch. <laughs> it. I, I, I couldn't imagine a reason where I would need to watch this movie. Um, this movie like has for me like a little too much money to be anything but bad, good. Okay. And it's like a little dated in a funny way. Like I think the anti-Semitism was like I, I'm not offended by it. I thought it was so much so that it was like funny almost in like a morbid way i think i'm probably gonna say it's bad bad too i don't really know what i would watch it again for you know if i think about dead poets the overt anti-semitism <laughs> <laughs> 
strangely come for the not football a, narrative, leave with a little bit of anti-Semitism. But, you know, Dead Poet Society, I guess you watch again for, like, the student slash fake teacher relationships, and you watch it for the end scene. And this movie is kind of like, I'm going to watch a bunch of people pretend to be excited about a helmetless 10-7 football game. I can't imagine anything worse than watching high schoolers play to a 10-7 final score. Um, yeah, there was no reason nobody saw Leatherheads, George Clooney. <laughs> um, yeah. So yeah, Can I just I, say one more thing about the like anti-Semitism? I feel like I have to get it in. Sure. Well, I'm going to go ahead and call it a bad bad, and then you go, you go right ahead. The one other thing I would say is that other than that one scene where he's like not praying at the right time, he's not Jewish. There's nothing Jewish about him. And that's the weird thing about it, too, is that like on one hand, he's willing to like not be Jewish in order to go to this school. But then when it comes down to it, guys, like he's Jewish. Like, what does that mean? Like, he's not a practicing Jew by any means. So I don't like but it, the movie seems to think he is a practicing Jew. Well, yeah, I mean, it's got these, like, kind of 90s politics of, like, being like, see, it doesn't matter that he's Jewish. It doesn't even affect him. And it's like, well... <laughs> it's not even a handicap. It doesn't even, it doesn't even ruin his life. Look at this. It's not even all that bad. He's just... He's normal, just like all the rest of us. Yeah, he's just normally westernized person, just like you Christians. But, like, in his heart, he's a practicing Jew, and we can get along just fine. He can lead us to victory. That's right. We can get along on the, on the gridiron. I th- I think what w- what you're saying is that this is a movie that's dreadfully unequipped to tell the very difficult story of like what it means to pass in America, right? And that's a- and for that reason, I think it is bad. Good. Okay. <laughs> it failed in such an entertaining way. I got you. Speaking of, don't you dare transition into Azkaban that way. Wait till your third appearance to do the movie segues, sir. School night for me. I'm sorry. I can't. I can't help it. In your summer 2018 appearance, you can do the transitions. <laughs> uh, you can you can lead us in if you want. All right. Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. The third the third book in J.K. Rowling's international ubiquitous smash hit book series, and and David Yates's slightly less smash hit eight part film series. Um. But David Yates was not in charge at this point. The person in charge of... four? Five. There was a tricky Mike Newell in there. Um, that, <laughs> you know, it goes Chris Columbus, Chris Columbus, Alfonso Leading Cuaron. off is Chris Columbus. <laughs> <laughs> Batting 275 is Chris Columbus. <laughs> okay. And then with the third installment of the series virtuoso visualist Alfonso Cuaron director of Gravity and Children of Men takes over to give us Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban Um, yeah it's almost like putting I would say not quite but maybe a notch below Guillermo del Toro or something Cuaron below del Toro like in general you think of like a style like of his near his level of ambition Cuaron over del Toro please oh my gosh every day you think so Oh my gosh, yeah. Yes. Dude, I, Children of Men is like maybe one of the best movies of the last 20 years. Like, and, it's incredible. And Pacific Rim I thought is boring. watching Gravity was, was unbelievable. Yeah, well, you cast Sandra Bullock, what are you going to do? But I mean, I, you know, we're... In space? It looked like space. It looked like we were in space. Oh, I would take, I would take Perron over Del Toro really any day of the week. I'd take him over in Uritu. 
I, I see you, Brent, and maybe even a little bit chances being like Guillermo del Toro apologist. I love Pan's Labyrinth, and I don't think it involves any kind of apology here. But I, I think I would take Coron as like a as like a a cinema style more than just an art style, you know. And obviously, cinema is an art, but I would say that like you know, with Coron, like we're expecting it gives you camera expectations, whereas like with del Toro, you're getting like costume expectations and like you know, uh, kind of to that extent. So I mean, I'm both definitely visionaries. Uh, Okay, I thought you were going to come from a place where you're like, you know, like Pacific Rim has like a real brutish brilliance to it or something. Pacific Rim is bad. It's bad. No, it's not. It's not very good. Okay. Anyway, visionary director Alfonso Cuaron takes over for the third installment of the Harry Potter movies, which find Harry, Hermione and Ron. Well, we we cold open with Harry like playing in the dark in his bed, like trying to read some spells or whatever. And then he's uh He's at a dinner. The dinner goes badly with his horrible uh, Aunt Marge, his horrible family, Ursat's family. Um, and yeah, Aunt Marge blows up, goes out the window. Uh, we hop on the night bus. Oddly similar opening to this movie as to School Ties. Sirius Black has escaped from Azkaban prison. He's a murderer. Sirius Black is the reason the Potters are dead. And now he wants to finish what he started. I want you to swear to me you won't go looking for Black. Why would I go looking for someone who wants to kill me? There's something moving out there. It was a Dementor. One of the guards of Azkaban is searching the train for Sirius Black. Can we quick explain sort of like why we chose this movie? Because not all Harry Potter movies would be pluckable for this category. Right. Well, I don't think it's, I mean, I think we could get our own category. Maybe we'd have to do it twice on the, like, you're a wizard, Harry sort of setup, like you're a special kid sort of setup. And that's like, not really what these movies are about, but it's sort of returning to a boarding school. And I think this boarding school and especially this particular narrative has a lot in common with both school ties and dead poet society. And I think this one's kind of an anomaly in the, in the books. Like even if you look back, it felt like it at the time, frankly, just cause there's no Voldemort. It feels like this interesting sort of side movie with a side mystery. Um, that is really different than the first two books. And is rogue cer- one. And is certainly different than the, like the epical feeling, uh, that goes on and on. Um, and even like the, even the machinery of the magic in this one with the time turner is just sort of like, it's, this movie has its own director, its own rules, brand new characters, its own mystery. It's really cool. And for that reason, I think kind of seeable outside of the other seven or eight. And I would agree too, because I think that the relationship that Harry, and to some extent Ron and Hermione, but really Harry is able to develop with a character like Lupin seems to be way more in line with the kind of standard private school boarding school film than what we see in really any of those other movies. You know, like obviously he's got Dumbledore in his corner, he's got Hagrid in his corner, there are adults that support him, um, but really this kind of true student-teacher relationship, like teacher breaking rules to teach student how to break rules for good as opposed to for evil, you know, seems to be far more in line with the boarding school kind of narratives than just a kind of traditional fantasy or even action adventure narrative even mystery i mean as you said that this this film also seems more like than the other uh harry potter's uh, films well this movie started with a cool like almost non-harry potter setup in its sort of outset of being this famous prisoner in this famous jail has has escaped 
And I think it's allowed to have a lot of fun with that instead of like the longer end game of like Voldemort's coming back. He's coming back. He's almost back. He's back. <laughs> he's still back. He can touch you now. Um, he, yeah, he's good. We have to cast someone to play him. We can't just use CGI anymore. It's Ray Fiennes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you're talking about Sirius Black played by Gary Oldman. Right. Who? So we have almost it's almost like a two sort of guest star movie, which I think is good after having seen already two of these movies where it's just these little kids and these cast of characters of these professors with one of them rotating. Yeah. Yep. Can we bring back Kenneth Branagh? Yeah, let him do what he's doing. Do you guys remember what you thought of this movie when it came out? Oh, I've long held an affection for this film. Oh, wow. A deeply dividing film in my high school friends, though, as we'll talk about in you know, three, two, one. No, uh, I think in 2004, right? So I'm I'm 15 at this point. So I'm like just starting to be or like a like someone who's able to put like words to being a smart ass instead of just being like, uh, <laughs> you know. So like, I think that when this movie came out, I was um, I was a little bit upset because the third book at the time had been my favorite of the books um and this is i think still definitely before the seventh book came out i believe before the sixth as well i think only the first five books were out by the time this movie comes comes out and i remember being super disappointed because um you know one of the things that i thought was handled really well in the books was the kind of revelation of this like past history of hogwarts and i think that like one of the things that this movie fails at from a fantasy perspective is like rule building and world building um and i think that the movie doesn't really do a good job of like giving us a sense of like what things were like for lupin and snape and potter and potter um you know before she was potter whatever um beforehand so i i I still feel that this movie is kind of lacking that not that it needs like a a game of thrones-esque flashback um but i do think that there's there's something missing in its kind of leanness Noah? I would agree with that, but I think you're coming at it from a fan of the book, which is not a bad thing. Um, But I think if you look at this as just a movie that you don't need to have read the books to understand, this is the strongest standalone movie. I have the sort of odd experience of also really not liking this movie when it came out, and this was also my favorite book. And I think what I hated are the things I kind of like about it now, which is that Quaron kind of doesn't care about this world in maybe the same way like Ryan Johnson won't care that much about Star Wars because um, he's got his own thing going on. He's Quaron. He'll take a scene that's almost obligatory, like Harry getting on the hippogriff. And instead of making it a set piece that you're supposed to like feel in your gut, it's more transcendent with your eyes. Like it's all about the lines that the hippogriff creates on the water or around the tower. And he just imagined this world where people who can do magic will have an incredibly aestheticized world, which I think that Columbus didn't do. It's no longer amazing or magical, both to the audience, but also to the characters who like, like for Harry, like this is just daily life now. And this movie shot in a way where it's like, this is already an established thing. I don't have to marvel at it anymore. I can just make an actual movie with these characters. And what you get is a mystery and then a time travel movie, which are, I think, pretty brilliantly plotted. 
I, I will agree in that the things that I now like if, if I had to watch this movie today with like an extra like 35 minutes of like, no, but wait, here's why it's really important because of what happened 30 years ago. I, I agree, Chance. I, I probably would have hated that even more now. You know, that kind of like really forced world building that that in a novel you can do a little bit more delicately. But in film, it would have just made this really bloated. And so I do agree that like it's definitely more lean now and a little bit more focused. Um, I, I think that the that visual style that you're talking about, I, I think it does really exist for the first one, but it's more about the castle and the school as a school, whereas this one seems far more enchanted with kind of the grounds, you know, oh, yeah. like the, the buckbeak soaring and all, we get these awesome like big, beautiful wide shots of like, you know, Harry on the bridge after he's talking to Lupin or even just like the Whomping Willow, just like out of nowhere, just like a shot, you know, and so I, I think we get a much better sense of like of eeriness and of fog and of 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 space in terms of giving us that magic as opposed to just like I, look, store, staircases or right i kind of love how muddy hogwarts like the grounds are yeah like there's something like visually appealing about having them be like more like the ll bean hogwarts <laughs> you know they're wearing boots all the time and like sort of like you know sort of stylized letterman jackets it's sort of sort of fun our, our kind of like real intro to like classes in this movie we've got like a pretty clear rule of threes right we got the the divination class which is like absolutely terrible we've got the Hagrid class which is like hands-on literally and like kind of well-spirited but ultimately you've got a Malfoy who ruins it the third class we get is of course the best teacher of all time Lupin who is like amazing and perfect and like we have a montage in his class and everybody's up in there well he's the happy medium He's the happy medium between being too hands-on and being because he, unlike Hagrid, is he swoops in when things get too dangerous and makes sure everything's fine. Right. He becomes this Goldilocks, which I think the 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 movie itself like kind of undercuts a little bit. And I, I will say that like I think from a school perspective, this is a far more interesting movie than from a fantasy perspective. Um, I think the Dementors, in terms of like their strength and their like scalability, is like very just like such tremendous range in terms of like you can keep one in your desk like you have a, a dementor that you can just like let go from time to time well that's the that's bo- the, the, the boggart the boggart's coming out oh even of that there oh okay okay sir i think if you want to if you want to pick up the uh, pick apart the dementors in this movie it's funny because like a video game world they provide the edges it's like the truman show like you can't get out because of if you go too far the dementors push you back in the opposite direction the only part of this movie where i'm just like excuse me according to the books is the dementors <laughs> where it's just like the dementors kisses the death penalty it can't just like give it to people every time it sees one right that and you can't just me. like lick them a little bit and be like hmm I don't think I'm going to eat your soul this time, but yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that the magic in this is frustrating, mostly in terms of the time travel. I think the time travel is really bad and super broken and just like just has no constancy or consistency or like like any merit within this universe. Like, I love the idea of seeing this as the most standalone film of it. It has to be because if there is time travel in any of these other books, like it is such a big gaping hole that like, why would we use time travel for some dumb kid to take more classes? I think that the, I mean, and this is a strength of Rowling, um, is that when the Harry Potter books get to their third act, it's just like, I don't want to say it's a dead out sprint, 
because but you're just like in it and at a certain point you realize you're in it and there's like another turn and another turn and another turn and, and stone and chamber of secrets and goblet of fire are all like this where like the last hundred pages of the last 40 minutes where it's just like well they're wandering outside to go uh meet Hagrid before Buckbeak goes down and like and that's it we're going the rest of the time and that's such a cool feeling that I think Quaron is pretty good at setting up um I think the only part I found sort of excruciating is that they didn't think that we got the time travel and so over and over again Hermione's like we're time traveling and and Harry's and they're like waiting for something they already did and they're Harry's like well we got to wait for the thing that happened and they keep waiting and four or five times Hermione's like I think we're the ones who did the thing and they do it again and then they're flying on the hippogriff at the end and you were like and she he says you were right Hermione we did this because of this and it's just like we kind of thought we were dumb it, it, it feels like it's building the rules as it goes on and so because of that it doesn't have to really play by any rules just a, a moment ago you accused it of not building anything now not building anything substantial like within the universe it creates it as it goes i think that's honestly a problem with the harry potter franchise in general there's some humor in the fact that when he's like have you ever heard of a patronus charm and harry's like no it's like yeah because you just made it up for this movie like every new movie there's like a new magic spell or a new magic trick and like nothing builds until they get to like book six and they're like didn't you know that this was all connected obviously it's like but i kind of found that stuff charming like the night bus was kind of fun because that's the thing he's figuring out these new dynamics of his world that's inherently what's cool about the harry potter narrative is that of course he doesn't know everything and we're learning along with him because we were introduced to this world at the same moment that harry was boys you morally opposed boys what do you rate it what's what did you did you already go no you want me to um, what, who went first last time? I went first one of the times. I think this movie is... God, there are some very bad moments, including the last shot, which is just unbelievable. <laughs> which is not dissimilar from like some of the Brendan Fraser football shots. Um, but Hut one, hut two, hut three! I think it's good, good. Hmm. I wholeheartedly agree with you chance i think this is one of the better harry potter movies and in the context of this genre too i think a well-made self-contained returning to boarding school because i feel like if you break down these movies they are all fish out of water plus sort of cabin in the woods times white privilege and what you get is like a boarding school movie I think it's I think it's well made uh, for sure. Is it enjoyable? I don't think so at all. I wish it hadn't been a Harry Potter movie. Like it's it's it like the bones of it are so good and like the the like the the structure is so lean. I mean, compared to all those other like two and a half hour like you know slogs of Harry Potter movies. I guess this one's two twenty. So this one's not. But it needs to be a Harry Potter movie for the magic to work. This movie hangs upon the idea that you don't think magic is the amazing part of it. Hmm. Which I think is entertaining. Which I think makes for bad magic. Yeah, I think it's kind of an easy favorite, though. I mean, with respect to everything you said, Brent, because if you watch the... I had this thing where I watched all the David Yates ones last year, and they're all just B-minuses, and they're all the same. I mean, and it's interesting you brought up Marvel, because like thinking of this as a pre-Marvel franchise, it's just like, 
yeah, the B minus steward of a multi-million dollar intellectual property <laughs> is incredibly boring to watch. And to watch somebody else just be like, yeah, I'll take that paycheck and I'll fuck up your thing too is like pretty cool. Yeah, I admire the swing, you know, like the the attempt is great, but I, I think that it still just ultimately falls pretty flat as a movie. Uh, but I, I agree. I mean, I think it's definitely better than a lot of the Marvel stuff. Like, and I think like in terms of like creative visuals and creative cinema, I think it's great. I think that just the content, again, even some of the content that it started with, it just didn't have a lot to work from. Like Alfonso Cuaron would have been fired if they were making these movies today. Then we would have gotten up. It would have been the exact same thing that we've seen with so much like, uh, you know, like Trevorrow or Lord and Miller. I mean, and he's a billion times Trevorrow. the director of those don't guys. You, don't you apologize for that Trevorrow firing? But it would That's be, fine. It would be the kind of thing where they'd get a year into making it and they would be like, Alfonso, you're you're making this weird. It'll be like, well, then I quit. I mean, it's exactly well, what happened what to Guillermo the... del Toro with The Hobbit, you know? It's like, he was like, I want to take my time. I want to make it weird. And they were like, you have to make it now and you have to make it like the other Peter Jackson movies. And he was like, mm. well, gentlemen, let's get the heck out of here. This has been great. Would... Thank you guys so much for having me on. I had a blast. It's been our pleasure, Brent. Thanks for bringing your uh, your teacherly perspective. And thanks for promoting our podcast in your classroom. That's probably where we're going to get most of our listenership. Yeah, we're mostly uh, uh, requirements, I think. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're canon. It's you guys in Serial are the top two. So uh... We're hoping for a lot of university and high school adoption. That's our real end game. You can find past episodes of this program at berealpodcast.com. That's probably the number one place you want you to check out. But if you just want to listen to it wherever you get your podcasts, whether that be SoundCloud, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or um, where else are we? We're not on Spotify yet. We're on Overcast. Um, you can find us at Be Real Pod on Twitter and Facebook. Interact with us. Interact with us there. Tell us what you thought about uh, Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Maybe if you're like a weird like Wormtail. We didn't even talk about uh, Wormtail or really Serious Black. So if you have anything <laughs> you want to add about some of the main characters from that movie, hit us up on Twitter or Facebook. Um, otherwise, Brent, thank you so much again. Thanks again, guys. Appreciate it. All right. Bye, Noah. See you, buddy. 